Um, so this morning, we are going to switch gears a little bit, and we have been in the book of Romans, um, chapter 1 through 8, for a little while, maybe a little, about a year or so, um, just working our way verse by verse. We're going to take a quick break from the book of Romans, and I, when I say quick, that's also relative, um, because we're probably looking at an eight-week series where we want to talk about service. Um, and so that's the plan for the next eight weeks, and then we will um, pick back up in the book of Romans, starting in chapter 9, verse 1, in a couple of months. Before we get started, though, I feel like there's some disclaimers, like I've got to explain why we're jumping out of Romans and why we're going to spend eight weeks on this topic of service, and, and, I'll, and I'll be honest with you, I just kind of want to just lay it out there, the, the impetus for this study, the, the beginning of this study is, is simply due to um, my irritation with Christianity. I'll just, I'm just going to be honest about that. Because I have grown, now I love Christianity, don't get me wrong, but I have grown up in churches where this, this thing right here, this piece of wood, this thing called the pulpit, has been known as a bully pulpit. And, and one of the ways that people bully from behind this lectern is in the area of service. And I've been in churches where I just wanted to shrink down in my seat, hoping that the pastor was, wouldn't make eye contact with me because there were more workers needed in the nursery. Or there weren't enough volunteers for a vacation Bible school or on and on and on. And many of you maybe have been in situations like that. Now, I'm thankful I know Carl Green well enough and I know Mark Wright well enough and I know Bill Vesta well enough that that doesn't take place here. And uh, it's not going to take place here because we, we, we honestly want you to understand God's purpose for your life individually. And we want you to respond to the Lord, not to the pastor and his manipulation. Right, so that, that's the impetus of this study. So what we want to look at um, this morning is not only service, but we want to look at acceptable service. And that's what we want to look at the next eight weeks. We want to look at what is truly acceptable service. Not acceptable to the guy up front yelling at you, making you feel guilty. What's acceptable to the Lord? What kind of service is acceptable to the Lord? Because in many churches, all you will hear is the message of activity, 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 do do, do, get off your rear ends and get to work and start doing something. And that's the message. And, and quickly, if there's not a purpose or an underlying, underlying understanding of why that's God's purpose for us, it quickly turns into legalism. It quickly turns into a competition. And then everybody in the church tries to be something that they think they ought to be instead of actually just enjoying the Lord Jesus Christ. In walking with him and responding to his leading, it's almost like that would actually distract us from what we're trying to do, which is trying to be something we think we ought to be. And guess what happens? Those of you who have moved around the country, who've attended multiple churches, guess what happens? Here's the secret. The standard changes whatever church you're in. See, so you can be really impressive to this group of people over here because you've learned the rules. You know how to look good. You know how to perform. And it's not that you're going out to try to perform. You're just trying to meet the standard that people have set in front of you. And see, today and the hope for this eight-week series is that we can free each other up to just be acceptable in the Lord's eyes. Whether or not our local community accepts you or not, is, is this goal to say, at the end of the day, when I do service, you know what? I'm only concerned about an audience of one, and his name is Jesus Christ. 
He's the one who died for me and rose again. And that's my mindset as I go about my life. Not what is so-and-so going to think of me if I don't do this. And you know, many of us, if, if we had you raise your hand, you would say, you know what? I've lived life that way. I've lived my Christian life that way from time to time. And we want to we free each other from that. Because at the end of the day, if we have to shut down a ministry or shut down a program because there's not enough volunteers, but people are actually walking in step with the Lord, I vote for that. I vote for that because that's individual acceptable service. And so let me just show you um, why this kind of came to my thinking. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We'll spend a lot more, well, not a lot more time, but we'll spend some more time on this verse too later on. But I just want to show you kind of what I saw years ago and just in the study, as I was studying the book of Colossians, that relates. Colossians chapter 1, without giving you um, too much of the background um, per se, but I want to give you a little. Paul, we find Paul in chapter 1 verse 10, he's in the middle of a prayer. He's, he's verbalizing a prayer that he prays and he's praying for the Colossians. And so in verse 10, we pick up kind of midstream and, and his prayer goes like this, that you may walk worthy of the Lord fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, I want you to zero your focus on that one phrase, being fruitful in every good work. And you know, it dawned on me a few years ago that if Paul is praying for you and I to be fruitful or praying for the Colossian believers to be fruitful in every good work, you know what that implies by dichotomy? That not every good work is fruitful. You, do you see the, there's, there's, in other words, there's going to be an evaluation of works. It's not just about doing good works, just about doing service, just about doing activity. You know, I joked around and we had, I mean, literally had chickens walking around in the church in Liberia. And do you know medically that if you take a chicken and you cut its head off, do you know that it'll run around for a little bit? Anybody ever, now I hate to give young men, teenage men ideas, but, I, but that is true. That's a medical fact. And you know, if, if we as a church just wanted activity, we could literally just buy a bunch of chickens every Sunday and cut their heads off. We'd have a lot of activity running in and out and blood everywhere. And the teenage boys would be like, yeah, this is awesome. And we wouldn't have any teenage girls and, and it would, we'd have an issue there. But but, you know, if that's what we're looking for in the Christian life, we're missing the subtleties of things like this that we find in this verse. And so we want to just introduce this topic this morning with a couple of observations from the scriptures, that being one of them. And we'll talk about that in a second. But I feel like in the introduction, we should probably define ministry or service. And so I stole this from Warren Wearsby. I just thought it was a greatly worded, concise definition a good definition of acceptable service or ministry is when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. Now, I just want you to, to just kind of look at that again, read through it on your own, listen to it. I think that's a great description of ministry. In fact, I would love for every service opportunity, every ministry opportunity, every amount of good works that I ever do to be defined this way. Because this is, 
as, as you look at it, you're, you're meeting human needs. In other words, you've got divine resources. You're depending upon divine resources. You are a loving channel, which means that God's his resources in and through you to other people's. Why? So that they think you're the greatest Christian of all time, right? No, for his glory, for his glory. And, you know, that means that sometimes when you behave like a servant, you may get treated like a servant. And then you're exposed because why are you doing it? Because if you get ticked off when you're acting like a, when you're being a servant and you're getting treated like a servant, you just got exposed. Your motive just got blown up because you weren't doing it for an audience of one because Jesus Christ sees everything. He's pleased as you walk by faith, even if nobody else in the church recognizes it, even if nobody else who, whose needs say thank you, he knows. And that's the mindset that we want to go forward. You know, by implication, I love, again, this definition. If, if ministry does not meet a need, then I would say by definition, it's not ministry. You know, and so, and so you're looking for opportunities in, in your own personal life and in church service to meet needs, and if there's not a need there, don't, don't just have a ministry to make somebody feel good, right? And, and I don't know how many people over the years uh, in church, and, and um, don't get me wrong, I, we, if you ever want to bring a meal to Carrie and I, we will take it every time. We, you don't even need a reason. Like if you're just like, ah, oh, we got extra, when I drop it off, just bring it over. I mean, we got seven mouths to feed. We'll take it at all times. But do you know that there are some people in churches that I've known over the years they don't want people bringing them meals. And yet sometimes we get it so ingrained in our mind that that's what people need. And so we, and, and I've seen people get upset and bent out of shape when they're trying to bring a meal to somebody and they won't receive it. They're like, what's wrong with them? They must be carnal. They must not even be spiritual Christians. They won't even take a meal. For me. What's the matter with them? There's not a need. It's okay. Devote your energy and time to something else where there's a need. This is what we're looking for. We're looking for opportunities like this. So if someone doesn't have a need, don't cram your ministry in there to make you feel better. Well, finally, they took a meal. Yeah, they should have done that the first time. I mean, give me a break. Again, bring the meal over to the Clark's house. We'll always be thankful for that. So what are the main goals of Christian service or ministry? What, if we could wrap it up, and, I, and trust me, um, I mean, feel free to send me your emails. I, I, this is probably not a comprehensive list, and I would love to interact with you more. But let's just talk about three really specific goals of Christian service or ministry. Number one is we want to bear fruit unto God. John 15, 8 says that bearing fruit brings God glory. And that's one of the main goals for Christian service in ministry. John 15, 8. Let's read that. And get your fingers loose. We'll be moving around. It's a topical study uh, to some extent this morning. John 15, 8. He says, by this my father is glorified. How? That you bear much fruit. And so you will be my disciples. And so we see that service, uh, one of the goals of service is so that Christians would bear fruit and bring God glory. Uh, we see a second goal uh, as described in Titus 3.8 uh, as that it, it actually benefits others. So one of the goals for acceptable service is to benefit others. Titus 3.8 says this as Paul writes to a pastor of pastors, Titus, 
Uh, he says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. In other words, bring up often, affirm it constantly, that those who have believed in God, those are believers in Jesus Christ, those are saved people, those are people who have been born again, should be careful to maintain good works. Now, why? Why, Paul? Why should they be careful to maintain good works? Why should we affirm this constantly? Look at that next phrase. These things are good and profitable to men. Is there any dispute that when you do good works or you serve somebody else that it benefits them? That's, that's what we're after in here, and that's what God is after, too, in this idea of what the main goals for Christian service and ministry. And then finally, another goal is to fulfill God's eternal purpose for each one of his children. And, and that means this, real simply, and we're going to dive into this a little bit more. Let's actually, let's look at Titus 2.14 really quickly, since we're in Titus. Well, you might still be in Titus. I flip back. All right, Titus 2.14. Which says this, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Again, see, God actually wants the believing child of God to live and walk in good works. That's one of his goals and purpose for Christian service. And then we're going to look at Ephesians 2.10 here right now. So we want to look at, that's kind of just introduction. Let's look at six observations from the scriptures as it relates to why this is even an appropriate topic. So why this study? I mean, like, why are we even going to take time in this study? Well, observation number one, um, yep, for those that didn't see, there's a cat up there. Um, Not a big cat fan, actually, but that's okay. Observation number one. Um, it's clear from the scriptures that service and good works are the normal and expected actions of the believer in Jesus Christ. Now, let me just clarify what I mean by that. That means that, that God is saving us for a purpose that we might walk in good works. That's God's expected purpose for us. That would be the normal Christian life. Abnormal would be somebody coming to church on Sunday, sitting down, going home, and repeating and recycling the very next week, and not having any ministry going on or any good works to others during the week. That would be abnormal. Now, it's possible. We just looked at the book of Romans that said believers can walk according to the Spirit, but the believer can also walk according to the flesh. And we saw that when believers walk according to the flesh, their interest largely is in the two-foot circle that they can draw around their feet, which means they're self-focused, self-occupied, and it's all about me. As an old wide receiver in the NFL used to say, I, I love me some me. And many people live their Christian life that way. They love them some, some them. I mean, they just like... They just, it's all about them. It's never about anybody else. And so what we want to see from the scriptures is just to be convinced that this is normal and expected for the believer in Jesus Christ. And so turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And George read that this morning. Of course, we're all familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Which as you're turning there, I'll read Ephesians 2, 8, 9. He says, for by grace... You have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so Paul is basically describing how you're saved. 
And it's not by going to church. It's not by lighting candles. It's not by performing more good works than bad works. In fact, we have to get saved by faith. Faith, uh, by definition, is looking away from ourselves for the solution, looking to somebody else's solution, trusting in the work of another. And the good news of the Bible is, is simply this, that God has provided a Savior, a, a, a man who came and, and lived a perfect life, who died on the cross for your sins. There was a death penalty hanging over your head and my head, and Jesus paid that penalty by dying for you in your place as your substitute. And God, we are convinced and persuaded that God accepted his work on your behalf, so there's no longer a penalty for sin. If you put your faith in Jesus, because God has raised him from the dead, he's convincing you that this is the man where the solution is found. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop working for it on your own and trust in him. And that's why when Paul says it's a gift, you don't pay for gifts. You don't earn gifts. You don't even pay for it 20 years after you get a gift or it was never a gift in the first place. Salvation's a gift of God. It's not of works. So now many people will say, okay, Paul, so now, now you're saying you can get saved and you can go to heaven and your ticket's eternal punched and it doesn't matter at all how you behave. And the answer to that is yes, you can go to heaven. It doesn't matter how you behave. Now, as it relates to your eternal destiny, but does God have a purpose for the believer in Jesus Christ? Does he have something that he wants to accomplish in the life of the believer? Yeah, go to verse 10. This is why we try not to rip verses out of context in the Bible. Paul knows how to put stuff in context. He knows how to address all angles of an argument. And so in verse 10, we read this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so he says that we are his workmanship. And he uses a present tense verb here, to illustrate that we are continually his workmanship. We are, you might say, God's masterpiece. I, I love the illustration. I, I wish I could give credit to somebody else. I just can't remember where I got it from, so I'm just going to have to own it myself. Um, is, is a loom, um, you know, where, where people are weaving thread together, maybe to make a rug or to put together a, um, um, well, a rug's a good example. So put together a rug. And, and depending on what side of the loom you're on, depends on how you view the product of the rug. In fact, if I'm on the back side of the loom, what does it look like? It just looks like a mess. It just looks like a wreck. It's, it's all knotted. They tie the knots in the back. They're changing thread in the back. You just, it looks all patchy, but you go around on the outside and you say, oh man, okay, now I get it. Man, he's, he's putting it together. And see, so many times we, we look at our life and many times as believers, we, we're looking at the wrong side of the loom. And you know, what, you know what this tells me because it's in the present tense? This means that you are his workmanship right now, not you will be. Do, do you realize that even on your worst day, you remain God's workmanship? That's what this tells us right here. How many of you have just had a big, don't raise your hand. Um, how many of you have just had a massive, big failure in your Christian life? Not this week, but at one point in your Christian life. And you remember how that feels and you remember how awful you feel. And you might've even thought, you know what? I could never be used in ministry again. I could never do anything that would bring God glory. I've committed the unpardonable, whatever that is. 
this verse has something to say to you. Garbage. How about that? (laughs) That's garbage. That's a garbage way of thinking because it's not biblical. You remain God's workmanship. God is doing something with your life. He's weaving a tapestry. And yes, I know if I went to the back of your loom, I would see some ugly knots. Someone took an ugly stick to the back of my loom. I can guarantee you that it would not look pretty. But what is God doing on the other side? And I want you to know God's doing something. God's doing something beautiful in your life. And so we see that we are his workmanship continually. We see also that we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so we see that God is, has created us in a certain way for a certain purpose. But I, what I want you to understand here and look really closely at the text is you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. You see that little subtlety? We, remember I told you some people when we get to Romans 5, they skip over that section of identification. And that's the key. That's the mechanics behind the Christian life is our identification with Christ. God thinks very highly of what he's done by placing you in Christ. It's time we start thinking very highly of that. It's time that we start resting in that truth and realizing and understanding the significance of what God has done by placing you in Christ. This is why you can never lose your salvation. Because you're in Christ. You have his righteousness. You're connected with him. You can't go anywhere. You're seated with him. We, We go back to Ephesians 2. You're seated with him in the heavenlies as we speak. Your life is hid with Christ in God, Colossians 3 tells us. See, this is, this is key. This is important. This isn't some just doctrinal thing we want to just check off in our notes. This is a truth we want to live by. This is a truth we want to embrace. This is a truth we want to enjoy in our daily life when things aren't going well at work, aren't going well in our family, aren't going well in relationships. We can rest and know that we're in Christ. God has placed you there. That's an unchanging position. And we see from this verse that he did it for a purpose. He puts you there so that the good works that you do can for the first time be acceptable. Because what does he say about good works back in Isaiah 64, 6? Filthy rags, right? Unacceptable. Now, for the first time, because you are in Christ, the source of your life has now changed. You can actually produce acceptable good works to the Lord. We also see this statement in Ephesians 2.10. God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the idea is that this has always been God's intention. He designed this. He pre-designed it. And some people will even say he predestined this prepared beforehand, has this idea of getting ready beforehand. He made you ready. And so how did he make you ready? Or what did he make ready? Well, I think as we look at the whole of Scripture, I think some of the things that he has made ready um, is you. Your skill set, your personality, your spiritual gifting, your geographic location. He's, he's prepared all of that. There's no accident you're sitting in this room today. I know we have some visitors, so it might be there, there last time, and we hope they come back. We'd like to, to see you again. But there's no accident that anybody's in this room today. There's no accident that anybody's in Noonan, Georgia. There's no accident that I have friends in Monrovia, Liberia, and Carysburg, Liberia, and other places. There is a reason God has been preparing Believers, each one of you individually has been prepared, equipped, wired, if you will, 
For what? For the good works that God wants you to walk in. And guess what? They're not going to be the same good works that I walk in. See, they're not going to be the same good works that anybody else walks in. So don't try to be like John Clark. Don't try to be like Carl Green. Don't try to be like Bill Vestal. God has a unique individual plan for each one of you believers. And the question is, what is that? And your response should be, I want to get equipped. So that's why I'm coming to a local church so I can be taught the word of God. Ephesians 4, 11, I want to be equipped for good works and service. And I want to be ready to start bearing acceptable fruit. That's the goal. Not just plop down on Sunday morning and go home and then plop down and do it again. It's what's going on outside of these four walls. Is there even a a cognition, an an idea that, that the God of the universe who birthed you again in Christ, who placed you into Christ, has specific good works that he wants each one of us to walk in. And you know what? It's not gonna look the same. So take your eyes off of everybody else. Don't, don't be like Peter, who's, well, what about him, Lord? What about John? What about, don't worry about John, Peter. You worry about you. You know, you focus on how I've wired and gifted you. And did Peter accomplish many things for the Lord? Yeah. I think when he finally got his eyes off of those things, started enjoying Jesus Christ, he, he clearly did. Now, you'll see this word, should walk. This is, again, just kind of a subtle comment, but it gives us uh, another indication as to why we're even doing this study. Um, this word uh, should walk is in what we call the subjunctive mood in the Greek. Now, the subjunctive mood presents the verbal action as being probable or intentional, but it doesn't guarantee the action. Now, what, it, what do I say that? We'll go back to Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, that is the end goal. That's God's heart. That's God's purpose for each one of us, but it's not guaranteed to happen. And you know why it's not guaranteed to happen? You, (laughs) me. Are are we going to respond to the Lord? See, we actually have the ability to choose to respond to the Lord and walk in the good works that he's designed or set before us beforehand to walk in, or we can choose to reject that. Now, how do we do that? Well, we do it a million ways. In fact, I could talk the rest of the sermon about how we reject the Lord. But we'll do it sometimes when um, we're just not willing to, to sacrifice uh, time or, or effort or, or energy um, to be available to be equipped or to, be, to, to serve others. We'd rather, um, you know, sit in a comfortable recliner um, at home or do whatever other hobby that really, you know, floats our boat and flips our switch and all these kind of things. And we, and we get so distracted. We, we live in a world of distraction. That's one of the interesting things going to a third world country and coming back is to, to recognize the level, the mountain of distraction that we have here. And yet many of us, that's how we live our life. Just distracted just distracted every day. So that's why I believe it's in the subjunctive mood. If he was saying that it was guaranteed, he would have put it in the indicative mood. So he he shifts moods there to say that that it's probable everything's in place for it, but how are you going to respond? That's that's the, the exhortation. I believe we're coming there. So that's our first observation. Um, good works are normal and expected actions. Our second observation that we want to look at is that 
Service and good works are always qualified in the scriptures when it comes to acceptability before God. Always qualified. What do I, what do I mean by that? Well, when you do service and good works before men, it's not necessarily qualified. Like, if you, again, if you want to ever come mow my lawn, come mow my lawn. I don't, I don't even care if you have a bad attitude on the way over. Just come mow it. I'll, I'll take it, right? I, I'm not looking for proper motives. I just, if I benefit from it, I'll take it, right? You know, if you want to... Um, if you want to come up to me, uh, as I mentioned, bring a meal, bring it. I'm not going to care if you were griping and complaining about it while you were making the meal, while you were driving it over there, put on a big smile when you got to my front door. I don't even care. I benefit. I'm not, I'm not qualifying those good works. I'll take them any day. I'll take them. But when it comes to God, he doesn't deal on that level. See, see men deal on an external invisible level. That's what we see. I mean, we can't see to people's motives. And, and by the way, it's very dangerous to start to try to question people's motives. Have you ever found that to be true in your life? You ever had somebody question your motives for something you're doing and they were totally wrong? And they, they assumed the worst in you? And so men deal on an external and visible level. God deals much more underneath the service and on an in, internal and invisible level. I think I've um, shared this story, but... Which, which I'll try to zip through because I know I've shared it. But, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like when you're on the road and you get cut off and, and, and the first time it happens after you drive, you react in anger. And maybe a hand goes up, maybe a finger goes up, maybe something comes out of your mouth. It's all external, okay? It's, now, it, it, it originated in here and then it, it, it manifested out here. But then maybe you felt bad about that. You're just like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I really shouldn't be talking like that. I, I shouldn't. I lost my temper, I, I, et cetera, et cetera. The next time it happens to you, you, just, you get just as upset inside, but you, you bite your lip and you, and you keep your hands down and you don't do anything and you just look straight ahead. And then you go home and you're proud of yourself. Ah, man, I didn't externally blow up. And then eventually you realize you know what? I still blew up inside. <laughs> so even though I looked good to everybody else and didn't blow up externally, I still sinned because it was an internal. And that's kind of a progression that we're talking about here. And so when we look at service and good works, again, it's not just all about activity. In fact, I wish that, that there was some way God could put our bodies in direct connection to our internal attitudes and motivations so that you couldn't even do external service unless you were right in here first. And let me tell you what would happen. There'd be a lot less service going on. And you know what? That's the point. That's the point of what I'm talking about. That's the whole reason for this series is why just do things that aren't even going to be accepted to the Lord? Why not take the time to get our internal thinking correct? If that takes time, that's okay. And then we, then we do it the right way. We, we individually move forward by faith, depending upon divine resources, simply being a loving channel to meet human needs to the glory of God. Why not just take a step back and say, where are my motives on this? Where's my thinking on this? And we'll talk a lot about motives as we get into this, uh, this lesson a little bit further. But Colossians 1.10, I've already mentioned this, being fruitful in every good work. And so observation number three, some work in service is rewardable 
uh, and other work and service is not rewardable. In fact, join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going we're gonna to look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that, that deals with the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to devote a whole message at the end of this series on the judgment seat of Christ and what that's all about. But what I want to point out to you is there is a common misconception, and it's made its way around the world to at least Liberia and I'm sure everywhere else, that the judgment seat of Christ is going to be a, a situation similar to what's found in this room, um, except you're going to be up front with the Lord and every Christian in eternity is going to be out there watching. And then he's going to display all of your sins up here for everybody to see. Anybody ever heard that concept of the judgment seat of Christ that, man, that's going to be embarrassing when I'm at the judgment seat. All these people are going to be watching all my failures and all this. Do you know that the judgment seat of Christ is an evaluation of your good works, not a judgment on your sin? And do you know why that's a comforting thought? Because why is God no longer going to bring up your sin at the judgment seat of Christ? Because Jesus paid it all. Jesus was condemned in your place for the very sins that you committed. They are washed away. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They're they're gone. They're not even going to be brought up. And so when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, it's an evaluation of good works, not a condemnation of your sinful choices as a believer. Those have, that penalty has already been paid. So why would there be an additional penalty for that? And so we've got to understand, in fact, you can see it in this passage. I want you to notice when we get into verse 13, In 14 and 15, I want you to notice the word works mentioned four times. That's the emphasis here. And so let's read the passage and then we'll start talking about it. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Notice now he starts talking about work. Each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which has been built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved so, yet so as through fire. And so based on this context... What we're looking at is that that God, Jesus specifically, is going to be evaluating the good works that you engaged in in your Christian life. And based on the context, these works are the intentional building upon the foundation. In other words, you're intentionally building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. If If you're walking according to the flesh and you're living carnally, you're not even attempting to build on this foundation. This is actually when you're trying to do good things. When you're trying to serve the Lord, these are your intentional opportunities to serve in good works. And you know what? In the believer's mind, they're all good works. They're they're all good works. When we're building on the foundation, it's because we're trying to build good works on this foundation. And in that day, Jesus is going to evaluate them. And there's going to be some evaluation. And we'll talk a lot more about that as we go through the series. But a lot of it has to do with motives, a lot of it has to do with, with source, 
What source are you living from and doing these good works? You know, Pharisees did a lot of good works in their day, but many of them weren't saved. So good works uh, on, a, on a human level can, can emanate from the sin nature. Ever thought about that? That's why there's an evaluation that's going to happen. In fact, notice all the evaluation terms in verse 13. I'll just kind of work through those. He says, uh, will become clear. Each one's work will become clear. It means to, to cause to appear, to be brought out into the open. That means no phoniness. You ever felt like something, someone did something nice to you or said something nice to you and you walked away and they said, you are phony baloney. They are phony. Well, you know what? If that's true, which you can't really judge accurately, they might not be, they might be, um, they won't receive reward for that, even though it was designed to be a good work. You see, it's all going to be out in the open. He says that the day will declare it. And this word declare means to make manifest, to make known, to bring to light. There's not going to be hiding anything. God's not going to look at you in the car and say, hey, good job, you didn't say a, a curse word. He's going to say, you're, you were cussing in your heart. <laughs> you're cussing in your mind. It doesn't matter. It didn't come out. You were not walking in dependence upon me. Notice he says it will be revealed by fire. Uh, the, the word revealed means to remove a veil or a covering, which was exposing to open view what was before hidden. In other words, there's not going to be a facade. It's going to be burnt away, and you're going to be left there in, in your motives, in your heart, your attitudes, your thinking. And that's why that is, is so much more key, because if we can get that right, then the work should follow, acceptable work should follow. And yet, much of church history over the years has just emphasized actions, actions, actions. If, and I've even heard people say this. Yeah, and if you don't feel like it, just do it anyway. Just do it anyway. Okay, yeah, just go waste your time and do things that aren't going to be rewarded. Yeah, that's a great idea. Instead of saying, you know what, stop. Your internal attitude and actions stink. You're not trusting the Lord. You're not relying upon his word. Let's just back up a little bit. Let's get you rightly thinking so that now you can go do in an acceptable way. What's wrong with that approach? Other than some programs might get shut down. But what are we worshiping? Programs or Jesus Christ? I mean, when, it, when you put it like that, it, it makes a lot of sense. And um, I mean, I hate to make that much sense, but I mean, it just, you know, I'm, it's a joke. Um, but you can tell I'm fired up because I, but I have been impacted by this in a negative way. And I've been running around in my Christian life at times with a, like a chicken with my head cut off, running around in the dark with my eyes closed, thinking that I was actually accomplishing something for God. And I've just wasted that time when if somebody could have pulled me back, taught me the truths of God's word and put me on a better path, I could have reclaimed some of those years. So I am a little fired up this morning. I'm, I'm sorry if, if that bothers you. Uh, number four, uh, evaluation. The fire will test each one's work. Tested, approved, to try, to prove a thing, whether it's worthy or not. The idea is it's going to be weighted, weighted against God's standard, not, not our own, of what sort it is. It's a fifth evaluation word there. And, and here's the question for you. Have you ever just taken the time in your ministry, in your service, in your level of good works, anything that you do that's designed to build on this foundation of Jesus Christ, and have you ever just taken the time to think about how would the Lord evaluate this? 
Not is the pastor happy with me. Not is my church body happy with what's going on. Deeper than that, how would the Lord evaluate this ministry? How would the Lord evaluate this service? And see, it doesn't really matter what you think about it. It doesn't really matter what other people think about it. In the grand scheme of things, it only matters what Jesus Christ thinks about it. And, I, and if that's never entered your thinking in ministry, I would, I would encourage you to allow that thinking to enter in. So you can be rightly related to the Lord in all that you do. Now, in verses 14 we, and 15, we see that after the evaluation of their works, very clearly, some are rewarded and some are not. And so the Lord is going to make that distinguishing determination. What is acceptable? What's unacceptable? Now, many people get hung up uh, in verse 15 and it, because the, the word says suffer loss. Okay, suffer loss. Let's read that again, verse 15. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. This is one of those situations where every time you see the word fire, don't assume it means hell. We do that a lot, don't we? We, we see a word in the scriptures and we say, oh, that must mean hell. Fire means hell. Just like people think baptism means water. You know, there's, there's four dry baptisms in the Bible and three wet. So, I mean, if you just take that ratio, we should think of baptism as, a, as dry. <laughs> Water only comes into play on three of them. And so we do that, you know, we think, uh, we've talked about salvation many times where salvation is used in three tenses, you know, salvation from the penalty of sin, present tense, salvation from the power of sin. So we got to look at the context. So we're looking at the context here and all the fire is going to do is it's going to reveal, notice back up in verse 13, it's going to reveal the type of materials that we're building with. In other words, it's going to reveal the value or the acceptability of the works. And so when we talk about suffering loss, What are we talking about? Well, this is also used in the passive voice, suffer loss. It means that we'll experience forfeiture or there'll be something that's forfeited. That's really kind of what the word means. And it will be, that will be enacted upon us. It's not like we just, we give it up. Who who saw, I can't even remember what sport it was in the Winter Olympics. They they put a silver medal. Oh, it was hockey. It was women's hockey. The Canadians, I think, they put a medal on her head and she took it off. Did you guys see that? That's not what we're talking. It's not that somebody's going to take the medal off. It's that the medal was not given. They, they forfeited it because they didn't qualify. That's what we're talking about here. And so what it's talking about is forfeiture of, of rewards that could have been attained. This will reveal a real and noticeable loss. And so it might be something as simple as you're getting ready to cook a meal and take it over to someone's house and you're in the kitchen and you're like, man, I wish I wouldn't have agreed to this. This is the worst day possible I could be doing this. I wish I would not. I'm never going to do this again. This is so awful. And you start to, to make the meal and you're like, oh man, I'm out of butter. Now I got to go to Kroger on top of my busy day. Now I got to throw butter in here. And you're just, your attitude just stinks by the time that thing comes out of the oven. And before you take that plate over, If this passage comes to mind, good. I hope it does. Because you need to get internally right. Lord, in confession of sin, Lord, I I was wrong. I was angry. I was irritated. Here's an opportunity. Here's a good work that you put in front of me that you've prepared beforehand. I mean, I actually know how to cook. And you're using that skill for somebody else's benefit. And Lord, I was wrong. And you know, if that happens before you go to the house and, and now you're walking with the Lord, even though you're still got a lot of things on your plate, that could be a rewardable service. 
Or you could go on in your anger and irritation, drive up to the driveway, slam that thing in park, walk up to the door and put a smile on your face, give them the, the, the thing, go back to the car, slam the door, race home, and you just, missed, you just forfeited a potential reward. It was a good work that God put out there for you to walk in. You had divine resources at your disposal, and yet you chose to act like, like an immature child of God. And you were upset about many things. And so that is uh, observation number three as we look at this concept that some work and service is rewardable, other work and service is not. Observation number four, do you know that believers can and do serve from both good and bad motives? Would you agree with that and believe that? Let's look at a couple of biblical examples. And I'm going to... Um, I'm going to move kind of quick. So, so good deeds alone, we've got to understand this. Good deeds alone are not a good measure of spirituality. Let that sink in a little bit. Because I grew up in a church um, for, for some of my formative years that basically elevated the people in church who were most active in church work as the most spiritual and, and what was really interesting to me uh, over time is as I watched lives play out as time passed, I started to realize that, that the people who were doing the most good works in this church, I started to see their lives unravel. And it's not that doing good works is going to cause your life to unravel. That's not what I mean at all. It's just that that was the emphasis in their life and they were missing that internal aspect. And yet... There were other people in the church who got no fanfare, who, who just blended in, who came and, and served quietly behind the scenes that I got to know them. And there was deep reservoirs of spiritual life that they imparted to my life. I remember a, a, an 85-year-old man in my church one time. I didn't, I've never even talked to him before. And he began to see that I was interested in spiritual things. And I don't know how he figured that out. Maybe I was, I don't know. But anyways, he, he began to see that I had a spiritual interest, and that man bought me my first commentary set. And you know, as a, as a 20-year-old kid, who, when I had $2 to rub together, I was flying high. Because that meant I can buy a package of donuts at the gas station and a strawberry milk. And I was like living large. When I had $2 in my pocket, this guy dropped 150 bucks on me. And bought me a set of commentaries, which I still have to this day. And you know, that man was never lifted up in the church as somebody that was doing good works. And here's a spiritual example. And yet he's made a huge impact in my life. And I'm grateful to God for that man. And that's, accept, I believe, acceptable service that he engaged in in my life. And I appreciate that. You know, the other thing about good deeds is they're also an unreliable judge of Christian growth and maturity and kind of alluded to that in the examples. But here's a great example. Go with me to Acts 4. Acts chapter 4. And we're going to see Barnabas uh, as, a good, as an example of a good deed with good motives. Acts chapter 4, verse 36 through 37. It says this, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land sold it 
and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we don't get a lot of um, reaction up here uh, or in this passage as to how that was received. But we do kind of get an interesting comment in the context. Go back up to verse 32, because this was the mindset of the, the, the early believers in the church in Jerusalem. He says, now the multitude, in verse 32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And so you see, you kind of get a picture of what Barnabas did. He had land, he owned it, he sold it, and he took all the money and he gave it to the apostles and said, you use it any way you want to. That would be like each one of the people in here selling your home, bringing in the cash here and saying, use it any way you want to. Now, immediately you're like, okay, well, where am I going to live, right? <laughs> what if I sell my car? What am I going to drive to work? So you can see the great sacrifice that Barnabas did here, and many people did. Well, then you see, right in the same passage, an example of a good deed with bad motives. Because if somebody sold that and gave all, wouldn't you look at that and go, wow, man, dude, you're incredible. I can't believe this. I mean, Barnabas, I mean, can you believe this guy? This guy's incredible. How could he sacrifice so much? And so there was another couple in church said, I think, I like the attention this guy's getting. I kind of want some of that for me. And that's what we see in Acts 5, 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? All it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And so you see this, this idea. It wasn't the fact that they kept back part for themselves. They could have done that. But they appeared to have purported that they gave all. So they got the same response that Barnabas did. We know the outcome there was obviously very serious consequences. They both lost their life that day. Um, But again, we see how serious God takes motives. And so um, one other example of a good deed, and I think we're just going to, we'll have to shut it down after this point, um, is is a good deed with bad motives. We see Paul's opponents uh, who preach the gospel with wrong motives. Philippians 1, 15 through 16. Let's go there. And I love, I love Paul's response here because it's, um, I love it because it, it doesn't follow the natural way of thinking. And so you realize there's a supernatural element to view life this way. There's a divine perspective that he has. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some also from goodwill. So you see right there, some are preaching Christ with bad motives, Envy, strife. In fact, if you look at the the context of Philippians, it looks like some people were preaching Christ just to get Paul in more trouble, to to elongate his imprisonment here, or or to maybe even cause torture while he's in prison. We don't know, but they they did it from envy and strife, and then some actually did it with goodwill. But look at verse sixteen. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely. Supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? In other words, what do I I say to this? Only that in every way, 
whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. In this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. You see, when you have confidence in a message, and the message is called the power of God unto salvation, that's what the gospel is called, then you know what? People can preach it, even if they have the wrong motives, and I'll rejoice. But the point is this, they may not receive reward for that preaching of the gospel, you see? I can rejoice because the message is going out, but they're doing it for the wrong motives. And you know why I say that's so opposite? Because so many times in our day, um, we are more concerned with people's, um, like if somebody's arrogant and proud, but they preach the gospel, we just want to write them off. We just want to say, ah, they're, they're garbage. But if somebody's a really nice person and they don't preach the gospel, we're more willing to put our arm around that person than the person who's arrogant, obnoxious, maybe even aggressive and offensive, but they preach the gospel. And we will, we will spend more time with the person who's got the wrong message, but a, but a nice personality than we will with the person that has the right message and the wrong internal things and maybe work with that. And so again, the, the message uh, is important. That wasn't really the main point of that point. But the point was, is that there are four observations that we've looked at and um, the eight-week series probably just turned into a nine-week series. And so let's, uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, thanks um, for the opportunity to, to look in your word. I, I pray uh, that we were not uh, too distant uh, from your word this morning, that we were looking at things that are reflected there, that reflect your heart uh, as it relates to acceptable service. May this be something that you... Um, really just bring to our thinking uh, at each moment of every day as we're uh, walking and desiring to live out a Christian life that's pleasing to you and that this would be uh, part of our thinking as we engage in good works and pray that you'd bless uh, the remaining time we have um, in this study over the next couple of months. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.